Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. Welcome to Whining About History, the women's history podcast where two besties with breasties whine about women from history that you probably haven't heard of, but deaf should have. Mm -hmm. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And welcome, you lovely listeners, you lovely, luscious listeners. Oh my God, I love you so much. I love you so fucking much. Do you think we can keep that energy for the entire episode? Yes. Oh no. my god. I'm, I'm going to get like two paragraphs into my story and it's just going to crash. The year was 1938. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much I'm for tuning flex in over here the entire time. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just going to I'm just gonna like slowly do a strip tease and like <laughs> Kelly's going to like try to keep a straight fair. face and she's going to be like, "Wait, Emily, have your aerials always been that color?" <laughs> exactly. Just halfway through I'm going to be like, "Wait, what?" Wait, are you okay? No, do we need to call a doctor? We need to go now. Did they get bigger somehow? <laughs> I like it. Uh, all right. Well, I really hope this is no one's first episode. I swear to God, we are... Not, not this I, I was like, I don't, I don't know what you're going to finish that I, sentence with. Yeah, I, I don't know why I'm trying to apologize. This is it. This is us. Uh, 2023, not a new me. So welcome. Um, and Kelly... I chose our wine, our lovely, beautiful wine, and to no one's surprise, it's a cab sob because it is winter here in our dear, frigid, frozen, white, bullshit hellscape of Minnesota. <laughs> I've actually gone outside quite a bit this winter Today already. was actually quite lovely. Actually, today sucked ass, but all the other days before, I went on walks. Like, in the... Like freak weird cold blizzard shit we had today was like the only nice sunny day. I walked. What is wrong with you? I've done a lot of walking except for yesterday and today because it's been cold. So I am picking a lovely cab sob from 2020, the year which we shall not speak of, from the Western Cape of South Africa. It's called Arabella and it has a horse on it. So you know. It's fucking fancy because only rich people can afford horses. So the back of this, this is from my like naked wines angel box, which is why it has dust on it because it's been a minute since I bought this. The back says angel saved me when I needed it the most. Oh, I didn't know this was going to be like a Saint origin story. Cool. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought this I thought this person was about to share some trauma. My brother and I had just parted ways in the family vineyard and I jumped at the opportunity to work with nakedwines.com. Each vintage a more impressive number of angels do me and my family's vineyard a huge honor. Not just by drinking these wines, but by making them happen. Kelly, we made this wine happen. And we helped this person I'm so happy. with the breakup with their brother. I'm so happy. Oh my God. We're basically good Samaritans. Heck yeah. We're basically a nonprofit 100%. right now. So is it Arabella or Arabella? Uh Arabella. Arabella. Yeah. Isn't that a song by the Arctic Monkeys? Yes, and I love it. I oh, love that song so much. Song. Well, um, 
hey, let's cheer to healthy breakups. Whether it's with your brother or a toxic ex or a shitty friend or a crappy parent. Healthy breakups with your racist boundaries with your racist uncle jerry who just would not shut the fuck up at thanksgiving i'm your uncle jerry now and i love and accept you and i will use your pronouns cheers (laughs) fuck you jerry fuck you jerry jerry can suck my clit but you'd be really bad at it because racists are bad at giving right? head. Yep. No, that's actually a scientific fact. Racists are bad 1, at sex. They're terrible. They're terrible at so many things, which is why they're so mad and have to blame people of not their race. Exactly. For all that's their shortcomings. Yeah. No, it's it's science. Are you ready for some history? Ooh, I'm ready for that dramatic head turn you <laughs> just did. Uh, I'm, I'm going to whine about Gertrude Bell. Ooh. I checked our list. We haven't whined about her. Gertie yet. Bell. <laughs> she has the best full dirty, name Gertie, ever. Dirty, dirty Gertie. Turning 30. <laughs> Pretty sure she was more than 30. Anyways. She turned so 30 at some point her in her life, though. Her full name was Gertrude Margaret Lothian Bell. Oh, right? my God. Love it. That's a name. That. That, okay. Remember when they used to like have those big, uh, I, I say remember as if we've ever experienced this, but you know, back in the day when they used to have those big fancy parties and like announce when yeah. people entered like, the room. Well, like your coming of age and stuff. Yeah. Like and a you got to, like, debutante. Walk down or, the, I mean, I think they'd still do that in the South. Like presenting. Yeah. What like you get fuck? presented and you have a guy on your arm and I almost just ripped my head. I'm glad I wasn't wearing uh, like earbuds because that would have hurt. If you can't ready, tell, Kelly has been drinking. But no, can you imagine like entering a room and Gertrude it's Gertrude Margaret Bell? Everyone just fucking owned the place. I bet she does. Yeah, everyone just bows. Yeah, no, everyone is like, "What do you want me to do? You want me to go jump in front of that car? I will I, fucking I jump will in front it. of that I'm car right now. I'm gonna light myself on fire. That's what you want, right? Yeah, yeah I will light myself on fire. So. She was born on the 14th of July, 1868. So we're going back. All right. In County Durham, Washington, in England. Her grandfather was the industrious and politician Sir Isaac Lothian Lothian Bell. Another great name. Oh, yeah. Who established the family fortune while her father was Sir Hugh Bell, an intellectual but liberal-minded industrious. He mandated fair wages and paid sick days for his workers. That's actually like shocking for 1860, like 68. That is shocking. Dirty fucking hippie. Her mother was Maria Shield, who died in 1871 after giving birth to her brother, Maurice. That sucks. Yeah. No, no. Maternal and infant mortality rates were no joke. Huge. That sucks. I, okay. The idea of getting pregnant now. Scares the absolute shit out of me. I can't imagine if it was like, like, yeah, you're probably going to die, though. Super low infant mortality and even lower mother mortality rates. It's actually increasing in the United States, which is is kind of bonkers. But you know why that is? It is because more people are opting for home births. Ew. Yep. Wait, do you have morphine at home? No. I want morphine. Exactly. Except you don't get morphine. You get, um... 
I want to say epinephrine, but that doesn't sound right. I want drugs. What I drug would want drugs. Okay. Do you get to have a baby? Okay. Well, Kelly is looking that up. I just want to say I have had like some procedures done where they're like, I mean, you don't need drugs for this. And I'm like, no, that is literally the only good part about this. Here's my arm. Right. Here's the IV. Shoot me up, bitch. So pain, they just say like general narcotics. <laughs> All right. The, and then the epidural, which is yeah. the one I was thinking of. Or a spinal block. Those hurt going in, though. Like, yeah, anything in your spine. Anyways, okay. I say as if I've experienced it. <laughs> yeah, neither of us have had children. And in case anyone hasn't picked up on that in our 70, 170 whatever episodes. Could you Anyways. imagine if I had children? And I would talk about like. Can you imagine like, either of us having kids? No, but could you imagine me You'd having children? And then here's the thing. I think I'd be a great mom. But I think also what makes would make me a great mom is knowing like I don't want to be one. Right. There are I I don't want to be one. I don't think I'd be a good mother. I have anger problems. I don't think I'd ever actually like hurt a child or anything. But I also like there are things like mental things in my family history and my history and other medical conditions that I'm like, I don't want to pass it on to a child. Mm-hmm. In addition to I just don't want to have a child. Anyways. So after her mother, Maria, died, um, her father, Hugh, married Florence Oliff, who was a playwright and author, at, and they would go on to have three more children. Uh, Hugh, Florence, Mary, and the other children were all very, very close, um, with Mary corresponding with both her mother and or her stepmother and father throughout the rest of her life. So like they actually had a good family relationship. As a young girl, Gertrude um, was described as high-spirited, in quotes, high-spirited by her stepmother, who noted that when she wasn't reading or writing, she was engaging in various naughty behaviors, again, in quotes, such as steep hill climbing, climbing cliffs, scaling other heights. Basically, she was acting like a boy. So she was me. Yeah. She was a tomboy. Oh, when she's not reading, she's playing outside. Like, I'm right. sorry, what? So she's at, she seemed to act quite differently from other girls her age. Again, remember, this is, we're in the 1860-ish, 1870s. Um, so she seemed quite different from other girls um, that she associated with. So her parents decided to treat her differently. At the time, in the 1870s-ish, most girls didn't get sent away to be schooled. They were schooled at home, generally in the homemaking arts or with tutors. Watch watch Nanny fold laundry. Exactly. Now you fold laundry. Um, but because she acted differently, her parents decided to send her away to be educated. That's okay. What I like about that is they're saying like, she has other needs and outlets that need to be met. Right. So let's address that. Like, let, let, let's Her parents, I feel like we're being appropriate parents. Yeah, like let's not curb that or try to get her to stop because it's not typical of girls right. her age. It's like, no, let's just... Let's see where this goes. Yeah, let, let, let's feed those interests. I like that. Right. How progressive of them. I uh, Yeah. Dirty fucking hippies. Exactly. So Gertrude was at first really unhappy to be sent away from school. You know, she got sent away from her friends or family. It's a boarding school style time. Um, but she quickly took to school life and academics and she excelled in her studies. So after the first few years, she asked her father to be allowed to continue her education once she graduated and she wanted to go to Oxford. Oh, damn. Um. Oxford had only recently started allowing um, 
females in some of their programs. And she was like, hey, I'm interested in the programs they're offering. I would really like to go. And her father agreed that she should attend. Great. Gertrude would be the first woman to graduate at Oxford in the history program. In 1888, um, though this would be considered an honorary degree, not an academic degree, because she was a girl. Okay. I just want to... I, I, so, like, I just, Oxford went from being kind of progressive to, like, taking a step back. <laughs> well, they didn't actually expect women to, you know... Right, they were like, shit, someone actually applied! <laughs> someone actually applied and finished. This totally goes God against our idea that but women still, are inferior. Good for Gertrude. Good, good for, for her. Gertie for Gertie but can I just say okay obviously gender is a social construct and is a personal issue for people sex is more of a physical thing which can also is not binary it's not black and white but whenever I hear this like oh no she can't have a full degree because she's a woman it's like I don't understand what because the way they the way they're thinking of it is genitalia. It's like I don't know what a vagina has to do with her passing her courses. Like, what about that makes her so different or inferior? It, it, like, like mm, we're gonna sort these people based on their genitalia, and some just suck. It's like, like that sounds absurd, but the whole idea of like, no, 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 men are just more this and women are less that like, we don't always bat an eye at that or we'll justify it somehow. It's like, no, 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 we're judging people on their genitalia and that's gross. Yeah. Maybe let's not. Good job, Oxford. So after she graduated, they, they, they did great with the comma and after that was all bullshit. Right. (laughs) After she graduated, she would travel to Bucharest with her uncle, Sir Frank Lascelles, and his family, um, and then to Paris and other points of Europe as uh, before leaving England to join again her uncle in per- Persia, which is modern-day Iran, mm-hmm. but at the time was Persia. This is 1892, just to kind of give you where we're at. Um, at this point, her uncle is British minister in t- uh, Tehran, which is a city in... Persia or Iran. Tehran. Tehran. Thank you. And at this point, she had studied Arabic and Persian um, and mastered several other languages, including French and German. So she's a super linguist. I've been trying to learn Spanish for a year and I still don't know shit. Uh, (laughs) It is easier the younger you are. This is true. Uh, In Tehran, she met Henry Cadigan, one of her uncle's secretaries and bonded with him over a love of poetry, which is very sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, Cadigan really uh, enjoyed the fact that she was intellectually equal to him and they would spend significant time together before deciding they, 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 they would get engaged. Find someone who is hot for your brain. Right? That is like, dude, you're just as smart as I am. Let's bone. Yeah. No, because if they're hot for your brain, they're going to be hot for everything else. Right. Um, Gertrude would write letters home asking for her father's permission to marry because that was the time it was. Uh, her father would say no because, um, Cadigan was from a poor family. And, um, even Gertrude noted that though her father would have loved to be able to agree to the match, like she, he wanted his daughter to be happy. They could not afford to support another household when he was already responsible for his own. Cause remember he had kids before his wife died and then he got remarried and had more kids. So, 
Um, Gertrude would return, return to London, hoping to win her parents' approval of the match, but would receive news instead that Henry had died of pneumonia. Henry Cadigan died? Yeah. No, he yeah. had such a great last name. I know. It was like cat, but again. So just a little There's cat. more it's cats. Cad. Oh, it's I thought Cadigan. it was cat. No. I thought it was like cat again. Right. No. Oh, Gert- that's sad. Right. No, Gert- that's. And Gertrude was obviously heartbroken. That's she would, awful. She would leave England to do more traveling because, you know, when someone lose, when you lose someone you love, you just go everywhere else so she would all be able to mourn right that'd be great she went uh so she left england went to italy and switzerland where she would become an adept alpine climber once surviving spending 48 hours clinging to the rope on the side of a cliff when she got stranded how many hours 48 two days two days how how many hours did it take for that one dude just cut his arm off 72 three days Okay. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Anyways, in 1897, she would start traveling with her younger brother, Maurice, who she was very, very close with. She did uh, like an entire world tour with him. They went to Mexico and then the United States, Japan, China, and other points in the East, and then returning to England by way of Egypt, Greece, and Turkey. So they just went around. Love that for her. On one, and then after she got back to England, she would go again on a trip to Italy with her father, and she would meet archaeologist David Hogarth and begin an in-depth study into Greek antiquities. This was okay. When you hear about super rich people, she loves history. Well, okay, here's the thing though: when you hear about super rich people nowadays and the stuff they get into, it's never this interesting or worthwhile. Or, you know, educational. But back in the day, if you were rich and your fiance had just died of pneumonia, you could go mountain climbing and get into Greek antiquities. Like, I don't know. It's just like when we hear these stories of super rich people from the past, they were into some really interesting stuff. Now, granted, they also ate mummies like crazy and stole carcasses from other countries. That wasn't cool, but I'm just saying. It's di- it hits differently, doesn't it? Like old school rich people excursions versus present day rich people excursions, which is basically just a bunch of Instagram Photoshop. Basically. Yeah. Ready for more? Yes, yeah, I'm so ready. I'm 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 sorry. I'm just like, no, oh my god, can I go hang out with her? Are like rich people. <laughs> I know, um, but I love it. So after her in-depth study of Greek antiquities, she would travel to Italy and Turkey and then uh also through Prague and Germany before moving on to Jerusalem to stay with some family friends who were stationed at the German consulate there. She would then move to visiting ancient sites in Syria and Lebanon and Athens. All while studying Hebrew and improving her Arabic because, like I said, she's a linguist. Oh, yeah. No, just in her free time. Right? That's like when she's falling asleep. She's dinking around on her phone. She's like, I should open up Duolingo. I should learn a language. Uh, Another one. (laughs) I suppose I live here. Anyways, um, in 1899, she would leave Jerusalem for her first solo journey through the desert where she would bring a camera and photograph sites, uh, ancient sites such as the Petra and Palermo, and then she would like do all that and then return back to England. 
1901, she had mastered photography and, and the developing art, because back then you had to develop yeah. your own photos. I actually know how to do that. It's been a long time, my, but I know uh, how to do it. My friend uh, actually got her certificate in photography, so and she had fun. to learn how to like develop and yeah. do the old I did that film in high and school. all that. It's so much fun. Yeah. Takes a long time, but yeah. it's fun. <laughs> um, and then afterwards, she would bring her camera and photographic equipment on all of her travels, capturing images of ancient sites still valuable to archaeologists and scholars Today. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1904, her grandfather would die, leaving her a large inheritance, which she would use to fund archaeological trips throughout the Near East. In 1905, she would hire a man who would become her main guide and confidant on her future journeys, who was named Fatu, or Fatua, who helped with the latter part of, of her trips before she returned to England and helped her write The Desert and the Sown, which introduced the larger world to a lot of the ancient sites in these deserts and to the people of these regions in the Near East. Okay. I think to us it's called the Far East, but yeah, to her it's the Near East. You know, direction, position, it's all subjective. Right. It's We're all in like relative. We're in the Iran, Iraq, that area, yeah. the Middle East, yeah, as we call it nowadays. So returning to that area in 1907, she would work with the archaeologist and scholar Sir William Ramsey, who she would describe as kind but absent-minded professor. Aww. What, okay, what, what do they call him? He's a himbo. Yeah. Aww. She would also meet British officer Charles Richard Doughtry Wiley, who was a married man that she would fall in love with. Dun, dun, dun. They would never act upon their feelings, but would keep correspondence, which was preserved, clearly ex- expressing this, the depth of the devotion that they had for each other. So they were in love with each other, but he was married and they were very professional about it. Good for them. Right? Good. Good for them. Yeah. Just keep it to sexting. Keep it professional. Right. In <laughs> case you're wondering um, who he is, he is actually best known outside of his relationship with Gertrude. For his efforts to stop uh, the Armenian genocide in its early phases and organizing relief for Armenian refugees. Oh, my God. Bless his heart. Yeah. So he, he was doing the good things. Isn't it nice to find a good guy in these right? stories? Um, so after she uh, parted ways with um, him, with Charles Richard, um, they would correspond on several historical events, which is kind of cool um, because... Then they, we have that record of that through their letters, such as she met T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, shut up. Yeah. And so, like, that's in her letters. And then she was also, like, she talked about a lot about, like, art historians and, like, a bunch of other stuff in his letters or in her letters, which are now, pres- like, preserved to this day. Mm-hmm. She would go on to co-write with Ramsey, which is the uh, the himbo that she was I working thought, with. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No. no. Char- thought- Charles Richard is the man, the married man she fell in love with. Sir William Ramsey is the himbo. Okay, I thought Ramsey was the one who was married. Okay, nope. thank you for clarifying. Um, so in the same year she would write, co-write with the himbo, um, the Thousand and One Churches, which is based on the, the archaeological excavations that they did. Um, and then in 1909, just a few years later, Futo would lead her to the fortress of Al Oh gosh. A Qadir, um, which is in modern day Iraq, uh, which no Western explorer had seen yet. So she was the first one. She was the first Western explorer to see it. And her oh, guide, shit. because they were so like, they trusted each other. Like they weren't 
in a relationship or anything like that. They just went on so many expeditions together. He was like, hey, like, I really trust you. And I know you're not going to, like, steal a bunch of shit and fuck things up. I I trust you enough to show you this that no one has ever seen before. Wow. So she went and saw it and she mapped it, sketched it, measured, photographed, and, like, wrote home about all of this stuff and, like, her discovery, which is obviously going to make her a recognized archaeologist. I, okay, one thing I just want to point out, and then I will shut up about this. Yeah, go ahead. But like when we when we cover these stories of Western explorers and archaeologists, you know, there's always like the guides that actually showed them. It's like this was a discovery for the Western. That's world, exactly it. Yep. But it's like, no, no, no. This is my backyard. Right. And like, that's why I say she was the first Western person. No, no, no. And I and I appreciate that. And I don't I, I think you're doing a good job with that, but it's just something I want to point out where it's like I agree. People got famous for being the first Westerner where it's like, no, 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 we all knew about this. Like, right, like this is normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm sorry that this is new to you. But that right. doesn't mean you discovered shit. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. It's just that like whole narrative of colonization and Western supremacy. Right. And like, here's the thing. I think that's really cool that she she's spreading that knowledge. Exactly. And like, I'm not criticizing her, but just that 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 narrative that we see a lot. I just want to pick at it a little bit. Right. She would eventually travel to the city of Hailil, which I don't, I didn't Google where that was, but I think it's like modern day Iran, Iraq, Middle East area again, Um, which she traveled there against the advice of others, just kind of to like see the area and to meet with Ib Rashid. When she went there, she was imprisoned for 11 days against her will for reasons she never actually disclosed, nor really seemed to understand. Like, (laughs) I love, I love, it's like, Oh, that she didn't disclose. And it's like, ooh, scandalous. She's like, no, no, no. No, she also I just didn't understand. Yeah. Know. No, she, uh, she got released after the 11 days and then would travel back through Iraq and Syria. Again, taking notes and photographs. Like she wasn't like, oh God, I'm going to run home. No, she was yeah. like, I'm just going to like leisurely make my way back to England. Yeah. Um, and she would return to England shortly before the art- outbreak of World War One. Oh, so that's where we are in timeline. Yeah. Um. So at the outbreak of World War Run, Gertrude would contribute to the war effort as a Red Cross volunteer, uh, first in England and then in France. Her brother Maurice, who she was really close to, I mentioned earlier, she traveled with him, um, actually got deployed to the Western Front. Um, and she re- would receive letters from him as well as a few of her other correspondents. Um, Did he die? He didn't die, but okay. the uh, himbo. No, oh, not, not himbo. I think the other guy. I think the guy she oh. was in love with. Hold on. I got to scroll back up. Um, yeah. So the guy she was in love with, the married man, um, he was a lieutenant colonel and was commanding troops abroad, and he was killed in action uh. Uh, in April 1915. And obviously Gertrude was deeply affected by his death, and... There were some uh, reports of a lone woman arriving at the beach to place a wreath on his grave where a lot of people aren't sure if it was either his wife or Gertrude or who, but a lot of people think seem to think it was Gertrude because his wife hadn't, wasn't really the traveling kind, whereas Gertrude had a lot of the resources and experiences to be able yeah. to make that journey. Well, I mean, at the very least, she definitely mourned him. 100%. I, I mean, like World War One and World War Two, especially when you're in 
a European country or England or any of that, I like it must have been incredibly rare to run into someone who didn't lose someone to oh, that 100%. war. Like it just, I mean, even even like um, you know the the Vietnam war in the United States like everyone was touched by it everyone knew someone my dad actually so when I was I think I was 13 went to Washington DC and we saw the Vietnam War Memorial so hard um and there I I don't think my dad personally was like very close to anyone who who died but there was there was someone a high school classmate who like he knew someone who died and he found his name on the wall and even like my dad's not a very like outwardly emotional like guy and he was just staring at this name he like it just yeah no and that's yeah uh, uh. so after charles richard's death um gertrude really threw herself in to her work at first with the red cross and then she was called to help in cairo with the british military intelligence because they knew she had extensive knowledge of their area that mm-hmm. they were working in so she would start working with them and then work for the Arab Bureau um, of Intelligence, basically to help kind of with the, the ops going on in the area. Because like, like I said, she had taken a lot of pictures. She had drawn maps. Like she knew the area. Right. So in her capacity as an intelligence officer, Gertrude was among one of the first to report on the Armenian genocide that Charles Holy Richard, shit. the one that died, had tried to prevent. Oh my God. Talk about like things kind of like rolling back around and how hard that had to be. Um, So for those who don't know, it was the Ottoman Empire carrying out the genocide of the Armenians. Also modern day Turkey is kind of what is the area. Mm -hmm. Um, And they joined with Germany as one of the central powers against the allies. So that's kind of slight background. Um, And basically something I actually didn't know and I learned here was that... um, by the Allies, the Ottoman Empire was ordered to construct a railway um, between Mecca and Damascus to be able to transport troops faster. I had no idea that that, that was a thing. Yeah. Um, so that they, they were working on that. And obviously the people of Mecca had been trying to rally against the Turks. And it was like this whole like thing um, because the Turks were trying to like ban the Arab culture and outlaw the language and arrest nationals and like it was this whole thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it I became mean, a genocide. Like well, it was a whole thing. Obviously, obviously, like that. This episode is not about the Armenian genocide. We're no, not trying to. That's gloss why I'm trying to do it. like a very um, background while still like providing context. Yeah. Oh my god. You know what breaks my heart is like the man that she loved that like. Trying to prevent this. Well, she and him were both very respectful of the fact that he was married. Right. He tried to prevent it. And now she's like reporting on like, man, this didn't have to happen. Right. The per like the man I loved who was killed in war tried to prevent this. And now I'm here reporting on it. And this is bullshit. Oh, um, It's hard to come back from genocide, isn't it? Right. It's it's heavy. Yeah. So there was all this genocide, and she was kind of like a key piece to helping the British help the Armenians. Mm-hmm. 
um, because she had a fluency of the language. She had a knowledge of the culture, the history, the people, like all of this thing. And she would act as a liaison between the British and the soon to be established government of the independent Arab state, because that was what they asked for. When the Armenian people came and they asked for help, they were like, hey, we want help. But when we when we are done, when we are done ousting the Ottomans, we would like to be our own individual state. Yeah. Which did happen. So at this time, uh, neither Gertrude nor anyone else was aware of something called the the Sykes-Picot Agreement between Great Britain, France, the Kingdom of Italy, and Imperial Russia. So that's who kind of made it. Which divided up the Near East between them, which ignored the promises made between um, the Armenian people and, like, the intermediaries. This would actually only be disclosed by the Russians after the Bolshevik Resolution hap- or Bolshevik Revolution happened toward the end of World War One. Like that's oh, when it came out that like, hey, we've already divided up all this land. Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Like we we are definitely living in, to put it nicely, interesting times. Yep. Um. There have been interesting times before. Right. Let's just oh, put yeah. it that way. So, and that actually gives me, it, it, it's simultaneously depressing where it's like, oh my God, can't we figure this out? But also it's like, okay, there were like, like so many of the stories we cover are people who like stood up right. and rose to the challenge during interesting times, which is also very inspirational, right. but also it's like, oh my God, okay. can so things the, stop being interesting? Exactly. <laughs> so the Bolshevik revolution and like, the the revealing of this Sykes-Picot agreement of the divi- the division of the East came out in October of 1917. The United States joined the war, World War One, the Great War, in April of 1917, which means they joined the war ignorant that this agreement had ever happened, which means that they were fighting with an understanding that the the East would be an autonomous nation once the war was over. And that was not the case. And that was not the case. They just didn't know it. So the same year later, after the um, it was disclosed, basically someone else came out and issued the Balfour Declaration, which promised Palestine its own country and an autonomous Jewish state, which we know is still in conflict to this day. Yeah. Um, Basically because, so one guy promised Palestine, its individual state, but that's the same area that um, the Armenians controlled and were promised to be there. Then that's, so that's why there's still like conflict there because basically they were both agreed to two different people, but at the same time, the French thought that they would be getting it due to this other agreement that no one knew about except for, like, only a few people. I'm feeling, like, really competent as an individual yeah. and a professional right now. Good. Because <laughs> that's That's why total... I, like, left all this in. I'm like, I know Gertrude isn't, like, 100% involved in this, but at the same time, I'm like, dear but sweet it's such Jesus. a It's a clusterfuck of international proportions, right. the reverberations of which we are still dealing with today. Exactly. God so damn it. This, the promising of Palestine to the Zionist movement for the autonomous Jewish state was called the Balfour Declaration. And the United States um, supported that. 
They were like, yeah, because that happened after they joined the war. So they knew about it. They were Mm -hmm. aware of it. And they were like, yeah, of course, we'll give an autonomous Jewish nation. Whereas Gertrude was like, no, we already have this other agreement with the Armenians because we helped them with their genocide. So not only did Gertrude retract, um, I don't know what the word I was looking for. Withdrew? Reject. Reject. Not only did Gertrude reject that, the Balfour Declaration, but she also rejected the Sykes-Picote Agreement, which was the one that like all the countries had divided up the land without telling anyone, because she was like, no one knew about this, so we helped someone with a genocide and promised them land, and now we're just going back on that agreement? She was like... I don't think that's fair because you guys did not make your agreement public. Yeah. Like that's bullshit. So basically she was like, no, like the only valid agreement is this one that was public. And we like helped these people save their people. Yeah. But in agreement that they would have their own state. Like not only did you not publish the terms and conditions, but you did like, we didn't click on it. We didn't click agree. You just decided, no, no, no. These are the terms and conditions, and you right. agreed. It's like that. none of that actually ever happened. Right. So she argued for a free Arab state, which was, which was what was promised, leaving Palestine to the Arabs, not the Jewish. Uh, Lawrence agreed with her. Um, even so, the, the having Palestine be a Jewish state went forward, which is where we are today. Yep. Um, and that was approved. And not shockingly, uh, Gertrude was shortly afterward admitted to the hospital with exhaustion and other problems. I would not shocked. Also be exhausted. I would be like, please send me to the south of France. I need, like, I need rest and relaxation. Yeah, no, you, you got like internationally fucked over. Here's the best. Best. And lied to. Best. Quote unquote best part. Unsexy. So after World War One ended in November of 1918, Gertrude was assigned a difficult task. She was assigned a task of sorting out the quote unquote Middle East problem to everyone's satisfaction. So basically, they were like, Yeah, so we promised a bunch of people a bunch of different shit. We're not following through with any of it, but it's your problem now. That's how I read it anyway. Oh my God. So she would, she wrote up an official report, which she titled self-determination in Mesopotamia, which detailed the creation of independent states like Iraq. Basically, she's to thank for the independent nation of Iraq. That is it. Okay. Isn't that insane? How have we never heard of this I woman? Know. Also, and, and like, she's great. She sounds great. But how is it that, like, internationally, all these different countries and governments, like, pissed everyone oh, yeah. off, lied no, to it, a bunch of people? We're and not then, done yet. But then they're like, oh, but this one woman, this one English woman, she's she going to make all, Well, she's going to make the decisions. And if you have to be mad at oh. anyone, it's going to be Here's her. Here's the thing, though. They don't listen to her. Oh, God. Because she detailed it, like, the creation of an independent state of Iraq, as well as a bunch of other things. But British officials didn't believe that the people of the Middle East were capable of self-government. Then why the fuck did they... I know. Trust me, I know. Shut up, Google. Oh, my God. Um, So the British, and now also the French, Italians, and Americans, so the Axis powers... Uh, we're interested in government that would be compliant with Western interests. Wait, were they the Axis powers? Or not the, the allies. allies. Okay. With, so they were interested in, obviously, government that would be compliant. So basically, they wanted um, democracy. 
Yeah. Because they, they want it. They want to make sure it would play nicely. Exactly. With them. The people of Iraq, however, were not interested in Western interests. Shocking. Yeah. Um, and that triggered the Iraqi revolt of 1920, which united the people of Iraq um, together to throw off foreign rule. In an attempt to fix the problem, Gertrude and T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia, who has spent the greatest amount of time in the area and with the people, suggested that Fasil bin Hassoun, um, which was the son of the person that they had been working with against when uh, the Armenian genocide was going on, mm-hmm. Basically, they were like, he he not only was around during the war, and not only is he the son of the person we made the original promises to, but he is also someone like everyone looks up to. He would be able to unify this nation because he is part of the royal family. He is a Sunni Muslim, and he is a descendant of the Shia Muslims. So basically, he is part of like every different group. Okay, he... You, you said they were working with him to stop working, the Armenian no, genocide? No, they were working with his father. His father was the one that requested help to stop. Against, against the, like, they were, because they were the ones being slaughtered. Okay, okay. I was like, wait. <laughs> they were the ones being slaughtered. His father was the one that reached out to the British and okay. was like, hey, we really need help, like, to stop them killing our people. Okay. And that, but, but we'd like to be our own independent state after. Okay. Okay. And then British was like, yeah, that's totally fine. There like, are we'll a lot you. of threads I know. and I'm trying to keep them straight. Um, but I just want to make sure they weren't like, no, 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 no. He's like a little bit of everyone. Yes. He but he's also genocidal, but we no, should put him in he's charge. He's a little anyway. bit of he's everyone not. in the good way. And he's anti-genocide. Exactly. Cool, cool, cool. Love to hear it. So this recommendation was eventually approved by the Cairo conference and Gertrude's, uh, re- it was became Gertrude's responsibility to groom him and advise him on how to govern in a Western way. Okay. I love she, she was traveling. She learned all these languages. She was taking pictures and doing archeology. span And all of a sudden she became responsible for, for like, like a new king for everyone in the middle East. What? Um, what I do love about it is she, so she, she became his advisor and I think uh, ended up moving there. But what I love about it is while she was there, not only while she was advising, she also encouraged him to devote energies to preserving the history of Mesopotamia and this new country they had created and helped him to establish the Baghdad Antiquities Museum, now the Iraq Museum, which stores a lot of like initial artifacts donated from her own private collection from when she was traveling the area before it became Iraq. So she's an English lady that gave the shit back. Yeah. Um, oh they, my God, I love and her. And people in Iraq really actually really liked her. They treated her really respectfully. They called her all Khatun, which means advisor to the king. Um, she was more than she had actually created. Um, she helped create both the king and his government. And Gertrude helped draw the boundaries of this new Iraq. So she like literally helped establish Iraq. Um, what the fuck? Yep. <laughs> she also helped establish boundaries for the countries of Jordan and Saudi Arabia because they border Iraq. Yeah. Um, she advised uh, Fasail one to the point of frustration. I don't know on whose part. I couldn't <laughs> figure it out. I think it was hers because she eventually would return to England at, um, because she was suffering severely from various health problems. Basically, Can you imagine the stress this oh per- God, this woman no. is under? She would eventually return to Baghdad later that year, but would would do it um, 
not for politics. She just liked being a Baghdad. She claimed that the politics were too exhausting and she just wanted to go and relax. So that's kind of cool. She's earned it. I I read a news article. I'm like, that was exhausting. I need to go right. lie on a beach somewhere. She is literally helping to form and draw the borders of these countries right. after the global community made a yeah. mess. And they were like, it's your problem now, person who told us not to do this in the first <laughs> place. I'd be exhausted. Oh my I'd God. So I would pissed. be like, I'm done. I am. I, so done, guys. I would dig a hole in the south of France and just crawl into it and this never come out. This is my home now. Yes. I, I want to go to there. <laughs> I want to go to there. Um. So in the next year, she would, so she was still in Baghdad. She would preside over the opening of the Antiquities Museum or the first room. And then also entertain her longtime friend who we've mentioned before, but I don't know if we've covered Vita Sackville West. No, I covered her. You did, yeah. Uh, I don't know where. I tried to look her up. Oh my god, um, but I couldn't find no, her. No, no, I remember that. She had a really badass name. Yeah, no. So she in- entertained Vita Sackville West at her home, which is great. Wasn't wasn't Vita a lesbian? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Was she um, was she kind of did she kind of get together with? Uh, Virginia Woolf. Yep. She was a writer yep. and yep. a poet. Yep. Okay, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now yep. I remember. That's yes. kind of what she's known for, but she did a whole bunch of other stuff. Yes. So skip ahead like 30 seconds if you have trigger warnings. Um, so she entertained her, her friend Vita Sackville West, and then on July 11th, she retired early, giving her maid instructions to wake her in the morning. However, she was found dead from an overdose the next morning. Oh my God. The official report states overdose was accidental citing her the instructions to the maid to wake her the next morning um but privately it was understood that she committed suicide so like there are a lot of articles that kind of go both ways that she maybe took one too many and accidentally overdosed or it was intentional and she just wanted someone to find her so yeah well it's she was under so much stress right. and so much emotional strain and she had obviously struggled with yes some mental health issues before um yep I, I i think it's interesting the idea that it was privately understood where it's like well officially we're not going to call it right. that but, but everyone kind of yeah so oh, that like hurts. i said whether this is the case is unknown we're never gonna know um she did suffer from depression throughout her life and photos of her often suggest a deeply unhappy woman despite the many significant achievements she had. She's buried buried in the British cemetery in Baghdad. So she's buried in Iraq. Oh. Um, and her funeral funeral was attended by hundreds of Iraqi people who came to pay their respects for the woman they had come to regard as Al Katoon, um, or the great lady of the court. Also the king's advisor. The both great ways. lady of the court. Right. I love that. Um although her work in the partitioning quote unquote of the near East has been criticized as epitomizing the concept and practice of Orientalism. Um, even Gertrude herself agreed at least privately. She like obviously never came out and said it that the people would benefit from the quote unquote civilizing influence of the British model. She remains respected for her efforts. So basically like, yes, there was a little bit of colonialism in her. That's her wart. Like, yes, she was still working for the British. Yes. She was still from the West and kind of had those Western idealisms, but she still like, at least to me from reading all these things, she still seemed to really 
respect and care about other people's cultures. It also seemed that she valued their want for independence. Well, and the other thing is she's like, yes, we kind of maybe not need you to. We want you to westernize, but we're not saying get rid of your own culture. Like, no, you should open up this museum. Like, here's all these artifacts. I'm going to donate to you from my private collection. Like, don't forget your history. And I think you need to westernize to move forward in the world. And I, yeah, no, that's, well, and I, I like, I like that you're including that because one, it shows, it shows a complicated and nuanced point of view. Yep. And she didn't have this point of view from the outside looking in. She had this point of view from having actually traveled explored lived with communicated with you know this was these were views that she had not because she's like oh well you're uncivilized she's like hey I think you know some of these ideals would be beneficial it doesn't sound like she was dehumanizing them that being said I think it's still important to acknowledge like the colonial under overtones exactly in this story and Gertrude was throughout her life both admired and resented by many notables including like I said Lawrence of Arabia who is maybe more on the admired side and the English writer slash explorer Freya Stark who I need to read more about um who's maybe a little bit more on the resented side because she was offered and refused to write Gertrude's biography um because she didn't want to call any more attention to her to Gertrude and I couldn't really find why that was like whether it was maybe a little professional jealousy because she kind of did the same thing or if it was a a stance against how she felt Gertrude did I couldn't really find it like I said I'll have to dig more into Freya Stark separately like maybe she'll be her own episode Uh, Gertrude is often described though as abrupt arrogant and contrite but also in the same sentences generous eloquent and eager to learn and teach so, like, she sounds like someone who is super straightforward, but also, like, r- really well-educated so she could be eloquent. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, she but- was blunt, but she knew how to say it. Well, and also it sounds like maybe some of the arrogance was Probably. earned. Right. And her works continue to be printed to this day and are referenced by modern-day Orientalists as well as other scholars. Recent testimonies to the enduring interest in Gertrude are two films that were produced separately in 2015 and 2016 called Queen of the Desert and Letters from Baghdad, as well as other various books, articles, and graphic novels, all of which try and generally only partially succeed as these things do, as even only me and Emily do. Yeah. um, In telling the story of the brilliant and complex Gertrude Margaret Lowethan Bell. Damn. A story as varied and long as her name. Yeah, but like I I like started reading it and I was like, oh, maybe this will be a quick one. And I'm like, she literally established like or helped establish Iraq. So yeah. That that's so wild. There was a chunk I cut out because there was like a whole chunk about like the Armenian genocide. And I'm like, I'm gonna give the overview of that because that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. Um we're not here to cover genocides. Well, we we try not to. It's, it's we give the it's, we give the general overview. It keeps happening though. It's very frustrating. <gasps> Nazis. If we could just stop having those genocides, that'd that be would super be super great. Great. Um, you know, so Kelly, you and I kind of came of age during a time where the Middle East was in conflict. I, I, I mean, we we were born during a time where the Middle East was a big deal with 
um, the in Gulf War conflict. and all of that. It's and basically then, been in but, conflict our entire life. Right. But then we came of age, you know, after September 11th. And yeah. I, at least for me, that's when I suddenly became a lot more aware of this part of the world because I never learned about it in school. Like there's Egypt and then there's Africa as a whole ass continent. Oh, yeah. Exactly. But the context in which we learn about that is the ancient Egyptians. And this is where enslaved people came from. Like, it's there. there's no nuance. There's no history, really. It's all in relation to Western history. So after September 11th, when the Middle East became relevant to us as, you know, 10-year-olds... I can't believe we never heard about this because everyone like was obsessed and couldn't stop talking about it. And, you know, there, there was all this history that we suddenly were exposed to because I don't know, I, I guess it wasn't relevant to teach us before for some reason. It's just, but yeah, the fact that we haven't heard of her when she had such a, a hefty responsibility right? that was put on her. That's horrifying. I know, I'm surprised too. God. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. Wow. Well, um, thankfully, my story is a lot lighter. There is significantly less genocide, and hopefully we're going to laugh. Maybe not for the right reasons, but we're going to laugh. Right. Okay, let's do this. So today I am whining about Helen Hulick Beebe. Um, I don't know if that's actually how you pronounce that last name, B-E-B-E-E. I yeah, don't I even so. know where that part of her name came from. Ooh. I don't know. I, I couldn't find any record of her ever getting married or like what that deal was. So I don't know if that's like a married name or a nickname, but whatever. It's fine. Let's start this off. Interior, a courtroom, November 9th, 1938, Los Angeles, California. Two men whose names have been lost to the ages sit as defendants on trial for alleged burglary. Alleged. I put alleged in here because I don't actually know what happened. They definitely did it. Definitely. I'm the Okay, so presiding over the court was Judge Arthur S. Gurin. 
Things did not look good for the defendants as the victim of their attempted burglary, Helen Hulick, who had witnessed the crime, was there to testify. They were trying to rob the wrong bitch's house. But on this day, in this courtroom, the burglary would take a backseat to an even more heinous crime. Dr. Helen Hulick Beebe, a 28-year-old kindergarten teacher working with deaf and hard-of-hearing children, had been born and raised in Easton, Pennsylvania. She attended Wesley uh, College, which is one of the Seven Sisters, which were the female equivalents to the Ivy League schools because they wouldn't let women in, before earning her PhD from Clark School for the Deaf in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1930. She had moved out west to work with deaf students until she found herself teaching in Los Angeles, working with kindergarten-aged children with hearing loss and deafness and hard of hearing. Where fatefully, she was the witness to the burglary of her own home. Testifying as the witness of a crime is not an easy thing for anyone to do, but Helen saw it as her duty to give an account of what she had seen that day and to hold the criminals responsible. Perhaps with some apprehension, Helen took the stand to testify, but when Judge Arthur S. Gurren saw what she was wearing, he stopped the proceedings. You see, Helen had committed a crime far more heinous than the alleged burglary. She had shown up to court wearing slacks. This wearing slacks. I just love that that's a very, like, wearing slacks. Full stop. Full goddamn stop. Need I say more? The sight of a woman wearing pants in public was such an unbearable (laughs) distraction that the hearing simply couldn't continue. Oh, my God. Judge Gurren rescheduled the hearing, demanding that Helen return wearing an, quote, acceptable outfit. Yep. Helen was shocked that a judge, who you assume, you know, would have good judgment and understanding of the law and actually give a shit about, you know, finding out if these people had actually burglarized her home and then holding them accountable, would postpone criminal proceedings simply because she was wearing pants and she was not having it. She told the Los Angeles Times... You tell the judge, I will stand on my rights. If he orders me to change into a dress, I won't do it. I like slacks. They're comfortable. More controversial words have never been spoken. No. I like slacks. They're comfortable. Oh, hot damn. It's like, I like yoga pants. They're comfortable. And here's the thing. Like, not that skinny jeans or yoga pants are, like overly sexual or inappropriate but these are like slacks like they're baggy they're not super fit i god damn it it's just it's so absurd so the hearing had been rescheduled to november 14th and true to her word helen returned this time in an orange shirt and green pants because this bitch knows how to power clash. Fuck yeah. (laughs) She's like, not only am I wearing pants, but you're not going to be able to stop looking at me Mm because I am power clashing like a boss ass bitch. (laughs) Intentionally. Yes. I look like a pumpkin. Deal with it. (laughs) 
She took the stand, but as she was about to be sworn in, Judge Gurren halted proceedings once again, stating, quote, this this whole quote is so long and unnecessary. Let's see it. Let's hear it. The last time you were in this court, dressed as you are now, and reclining on your neck on the back of your chair, like... I don't know why he has to describe like how know. To, how people sit in chairs. I don't know why that's relevant, but he's such a dumb motherfucker. Anyway, recline your neck on the back of your chair. You drew more attention from spectators, prisoners, and court attaches than the legal business at hand. I want to point out that none of the legal business actually happened because he halted the legal business because she was wearing pants. Right. No one else gave a shit. Right. He's just like, wait, 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 wait. She's wearing pants. The man with the gavel and the robe is like banging it. Is like, no, she's drawing too much attention. Like, ah. Anyway, sorry. I all of this is just so frustrating. I'm I'm like sweating a little. All right. You were requested to return in garb acceptable to courtroom procedure. Today, you come back dressed in pants and openly defy the court and its duties to conduct judicial proceedings in an orderly manner. There is someone who is getting in the way of that, and it's not her, honey. It, it's time a decision was reached on this matter and on the power the court has to maintain what it considers orderly conduct says the man throwing a full-on tantrum about pants. The court hereby orders and directs you to return tomorrow in accepted dress. If you insist on wearing slacks again, you will be prevented from testifying because that would hinder the administration of justice. But be prepared to be punished according to law for contempt of court. Mm. Okay, you know how sometimes when people gaslight you saying you're doing the things that they're doing, that is what he is doing. He's like, you are making a spectacle and you are halting these proceedings, even though I am the one that keeps stopping and rescheduling because I cannot handle a your pants, fe- a female in pants. Right. I myself wear pants <laughs> on a daily basis, but a woman in pants is far too much for me to bear. I went to law school. I can only handle so much. Like, Jesus Christ. Let's talk about how pathetic, insecure, and fragile you are. So again, Judge Gurren rescheduled the hearing and demanded that Helen wear a dress. If she didn't comply, Helen would be facing jail time. She should have gotten a pants permit. It's been a while since we've had, like, a pants permit joke. So let's remember that there are two guys in the room accused of burglarizing homes and Helen is the victim of this crime, the victim and the witness. And he's making it all about her fucking pants. Right? God damn it. By now, the controversy over Helen's pants was gaining serious media attention. After the hearing, reporters rushed to interview Helen, who was reported as saying, quote, listen, that this is the best way that anyone can listen. 
She is so fucking over this. Listen, I've worn slacks since I was 15. I don't own a dress except a formal. If he wants me to appear in a formal gown, that's okay with me. I'll come back in slacks. And if he puts me in jail, I hope it will help to free women forever from anti-slackism. <laughs> Did he, is that actually the quote? That is the actual Anti-slackism. quote. Anti-slackism. Anti-slackism is my new favorite thing. The pantriarchy. God damn. The hearing was rescheduled for the very next day and reporters swarmed the courthouse waiting to see what Helen would wear. And once again, Helen appeared in court wearing pants. That contemptible bitch. Fuck yeah. I say I- this. Love Helen. I say this sitting in, in my pants. sweats. Oh, yeah, I'm wearing pants. Yeah. I wore them to work today because fuck you, Judge. I also wore pants to work today. Yep. Yeah. In honor of Helen because I can because she fought for my right to wear fucking pants. So Judge Gurn wasn't going to back down and he held Helen in contempt of court and sentenced her to five days in jail. Hundreds of letters flooded the courthouse protesting the judge's sexist and baseless sentencing. In jail, Helen was forced to wear a denim prison dress. The denim is really, I'm like, no. Ew, why? No, yeah. That, that wasn't okay like, in the 90s. Give, him at least, give her at least cotton or something. It Jesus. wasn't okay in the 90s, and it is not okay in the 1930s. It has never been okay. As the Los Angeles Times reported, quote, after being divested of her favorite garment by a jail matron and attired in a prison denim dress, Miss Hulick was released on her own reconnaissance after her attorney, William Katz, gotta love a Katz. Hell yeah. Obtained a writ cats of- Cats again. More cats. Cats on cats <laughs> cat on cats. Cat again. <laughs> God damn you. Uh, obtained a writ of habeas corpus and declared he would carry the matter to the appellate court. So basically habeas corpus protects against unlawful uh, and indefinite detention or imprisonment. And it helps to protect us against like arbitrary executive power. So like someone with more power over you can't just be like, Jail. You're in jail because fuck you reasons. Right. So habeas corpus, like to obtain a writ of that is like, "Mm, I don't actually think you can throw this person in jail. So let's like take a look at that. So um, by securing a writ of habeas corpus, Helen's lawyer was arguing that the judge had no right to jail her and that her imprisonment was unlawful. Spoiler alert. It totally fucking was. Because even though this is the 1930s, In total, Helen had broken zero laws. There were no laws against women wearing pants in court or pants in general. I mean, okay, maybe somewhere, but that was not an issue. There was no legal reason that she could not testify while wearing pants. The judge literally just fabricated the issue and the contempt of court because he didn't like the fact that a a woman was wearing pants. This is a giant hissy fit because he's a fucking baby. Fortunately, the appellate court who reviewed Helen's case also realized that, you know, he's being a fucking baby and overturned Judge Gurren's ruling only four days later. They say that Helen could wear wherever the fuck she wants in the next hearing without punishment because, God damn it, there are two people on trial for burglary who almost certainly did it. Also, I'm sure they're kind, they'd kind of just like to know whether or not they're getting, you know, 
convicted right so they exactly. can move they're, on with their like, lives they're like just let her wear fucking pants like i don't fucking care anymore i'm so tired right? of showing up they're here like, can can we just go to jail what like it's happened, better than this bullshit what happened to the right to a speedy trial because there's a <laughs> lot of bullshit this is, bull- this is why there's a right to a speedy trial these guys complained we robbed this bitch's house and we're not the biggest assholes in the right, room exactly. <laughs> like are you kidding me right now <laughs> All right, so once again, the hearing was rescheduled, this time for January 17th, 1939, just two months after the entire ordeal had began. Let me remind you, nothing has happened. There have been two people on trial for burglary, and the victim has been thrown in jail and punished more than them because they have even gotten due. They have even been tried. Nothing has happened. So everyone waited with bated breath to see what Helen would wear to court. Helen entered the courthouse wearing her formal dress, heels, and a fur cowl because she is the goddamn queen of everything. Fuck yeah. She's like, I'll wear a formal dress, but not because you fucking told me to, but because I choose to. And I'm going to go queen style. I'm going to go full, like, 30s prom glamour motherfucker and there's a photo of her god she's just she's stunning and we try not to like focus on the appearance of these women but obviously her appearance and what she's wearing is a big deal in this story and oh my god like she just went full like i'm ready for my close-up mr deville (laughs) it's amazing and that is all we know about that section of Helen's life. We don't know what happened to the alleged burglars because obviously pants were the bigger issue, but we do know what happened to Helen. As amazing as the story is, it is actually not even the coolest thing that Helen did in her life. At most, this is like a really badass anecdote that she whips out at parties. Right? Like, oh, that time that that judge tried to throw me in jail for wearing pants Multiple and, I, times. and I made him look like a bitch. Right? <laughs> yes. So, as I mentioned, Helen earned her PhD in educating deaf students. She continued this work and studied with renowned speech therapist Emile Frochlis. Uh, Emile, that's what I'm going to call him because I cannot yep, pronounce that last good name. For it. Emile was working to develop the unisensory approach to speech therapy, now known as the auditory verbal approach. Mm-hmm. So, this method was used to help uh, deaf and hard of hearing children with, like, even if they had like a little hearing, it taught them to learn to listen and speak using hearing technology such as hearing eggs. Did I say hearing eggs? You did. I was just going to roll with it. Hearing aids, auditory implants, or assistive listening eggs. Devices. Eggs, eggs. Devices. I like it. Everything is eggs. Everything comes from eggs. So this is in stark contrast to the teaching uh that was prevalent, which was teaching children how to read lips. And she actually wrote, quote, lip reading should be avoided as much as possible at home and in therapy. Otherwise, the child would become dependent on lip reading and not use their hearing. So basically, she is trying to not make them so dependent on lip reading, but like help them to develop any latent hearing that they have and also to develop their own audio verbal sensory skills because what a lot of people were doing like oh you have a hard time hearing fuck you you know it was like no no no. there's nothing we can do for that but or like hey you just have to adapt to the hearing world and like 
you need to make it easier for us. But especially with the advancement of hearing aids and portable hearing technology, it became easier for children to like learn to hear and speak with that help. So this was also revolutionary because children with hearing loss weren't expected to be able to do much. Uh, While Helen believed that they could thrive, she's like, no, these kids are way smarter and more capable than you're giving them credit for. You just don't want to put in the work. So um, Helen and Emil worked together for 20 years to further develop the auditory verbal approach. And after his death in 1972, she continued to develop and utilize the method with children. One of Helen's early students was a little girl named Marty Cranell Youngloth, uh, and she had been born deaf. Early in her life, the only way that Marty's mother could communicate with her daughter was through a funnel attached to a rubber tube that went into the child's ear. So, you know, like you, you see in old cartoons, like the old man has the, the tube with the giant like gramophone funnel at mm-hmm. the end of it. He holds it in his ear. He's like, what? Like, that's how this girl's mother had to speak to her by like yelling into this funnel. But when the first wearable electronic hearing aids began coming out in the 1940s, Marty was able to hear better. Yay. But she hadn't developed the auditory and verbal skills that hearing children had in their early years. So like there were um, like I I encountered a lot of children when I was teaching who 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 had hearing loss or they were hard of hearing or deaf early on. And because that's not it because kids aren't speaking. You know, it's harder to catch that thing. So then they get like a cochlear implant or a hearing aid or something, and they'd have to undergo speech therapy because they hadn't learned how to speak because they hadn't heard it properly and they couldn't mimic it. So like we had one, uh, we had one boy, he was five and even, even in like several years later, he had a little bit of a speech impediment because he had heard sounds like very muffled. And so he kind of had that like wah like he had a hard time, like he was wed or the woad, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. just because that was how he heard. And he yeah. had to learn to not only process those sounds, Oof. but to repeat them. That's so hard. But, but if you can learn it, like you can learn it and then you're fine. And no one like it's just a period of your life where you had to learn something. But she's developing that therapy that like speech therapy to help these children. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the same kind of shit that kids that I have worked with are getting. And that's incredible. Yeah. So yeah, she used uh, the auditory verbal approach to help the little girl develop these skills. And part of this work involved having Marty and her mother keep diaries so she could keep tabs on what was working, what wasn't, and what else both the child and the parent needed help with. Yeah. Because this is a parent who has not been able to properly communicate with her child for a fairly, for a significant part of her life. And the parent is also trying to learn because at home she needs to reinforce the therapy and the techniques and encourage that. She worked closely with parents to teach them how to help their children develop their listening and speaking skills. See, I already said that. In 1944, Helen opened her own therapy center called the Helen Beebe Speech and Hearing Center. Again, I I don't know where the name Beebe comes from. Apparently, people who were really close to her called her that, but I don't know where the name came from. 
Um, so here she taught students ranging from babies to teenagers and provide individual therapy. And this also allowed students to attend school with their hearing peers while still receiving speech and auditory therapy. So they're not being segregated or excluded or then suddenly having be to be reintroduced to a traditional school environment after their therapy. It's like a simultaneous process. Uh, she also served as the center's director for 40 years. David Davis, who has the world's best fucking name, was one of the students at the Helen Beebe Speech and Hearing Center. And in a, in a 1983 interview, he credited his graduating from Harvard University to being one of Helen's students. So he basically was like, without the skills she taught me, I would have never been able to like get as far as I did and graduate from fucking Harvard in 1975, Helen opened the Larry Jarrett House, an intense week-long residence program open to families from all over the world to teach them how to develop their hard-of-hearing child's listening and spoken language skills. And Because there was such mm-hmm. a huge demand oh, for this. Yeah, like, there's sure. so many families that need this help. And again, it's really important for the families to be on board and to reinforce that therapy. It's like physical therapy. You go in, you learn the exercises... But then you have to go home and actually do them. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So Helen was awarded an honorary doctorate in human sciences from Lafayette College for her revolutionary work as an educator and in auditory, auditory verbal therapy. Excuse me. She died on March 18th in 1989 at 80 years old and was buried in Easton Cemetery in the same town where she was born. Despite her pioneering work with deaf and hard of hearing children and developing therapies that were totally revolutionary, not only for the field, but for so many people, Helen is still most remembered for her courtroom defiance and her stance against anti-slackism. Like, great that she stood for that, but like she should totally be remembered for everything else. I actually had, okay, because the loss, because a bunch of Los Angeles uh, publications reported on the incident with the courthouse, that's where you, that's like, you can find articles, you can find all this other stuff about it. I actually had a harder time finding information about her professional life. Oh, also that judge died of a stroke while it, while on TV. He was like a part of a panel and he like had a stroke and died at like 62. Jesus. Yeah. I don't think he was a happy person. I mean, not that he suffered professionally for this at all. I'm sure he was. Yeah. Like no one, no one was like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't have a judge who's like throwing people in jail for no goddamn reason because he doesn't like what they're wearing and he's being super sexist. But I mean, he is, you Google his name and he is, intrinsically associated with this like he's known as the judge who threw a woman in jail because she was wearing pants so you know what there you go yeah that's helen hulick bb and her fight against anti-slackism i loved it that's great i that that what i love about that story is like the story about the courtroom is incredible and somehow that is the least incredible part about her. So, Kelly, what are you thankful for? Mm-mm. You get to go first. I went oh. first last week. No, but I asked you first. Don't care. Oh, my God. I need, God. I need time to think. Okay, okay. Um, 
I am really thankful uh, for the traveling I'm getting to do this year. Like, I already have a couple of trips lined up. and what? Yeah. None of them are with me. I Well, fucking tell me where we're going. Tell me where we're going. Just tell me when we're leaving. Got some PTO I need to use, so. <laughs> let's pick somewhere. Let's pick it. Let's plan something. But, like, you know, we talked about New Year's resolutions and all that. And, like, one of the common re- common resolutions is, like, to travel more. And for a long time, traveling was very difficult. And, like, pandemic notwithstanding. Like, that was the least of my problems with traveling. And now that I'm actually able to do it, it's it's been very freeing. And it's been really nice to travel with people who don't make my life hell. Like yeah. traveling with you to Texas. It was so great. It was it was crazy too because like I, I've known you long enough where I don't have those moments where I'm like, oh God, is she going to be mad and like take it out on me or something? You know, like I, I know right. you and I feel comfortable with you. But it was like, oh my God, this is what traveling is supposed to be like. It's supposed right. to be this kind of relaxing it's, it's supposed to be relaxing it's supposed to be fun and an adventure and you don't and have to have every moment planned or worry or yeah. yeah or like if one little thing doesn't go right everything is screwed and so I'm having more of those experiences and that's been really nice and I'm excited to have more of them so yes so now Kelly the moment of truth what are you thankful for I should learn how to say that in Spanish. Yeah, you should. Man, now I want to go to travel. It is. Gracias. Now I'm Para. sad that I'm not traveling. Um, hmm. What am I thankful for? I'm thankful for the way things are going at work. I know that's very vague, but there's a lot I like confidentiality yeah but I have my first client like my first fully mine client and that's very exciting and I'm very nervous but also excited to see where it goes and um hopeful and yeah so I'm just very thankful that things are going well at my job well, with all the practice you've had yeah. with me and dealing with my bullshit. I know, right? You're I'm just going to know. I'm just going to pro. They should just give you your doctorate right now. <laughs> you've seen some shit. <laughs> I'm really I'm really proud of you, and I'm really happy for you. And I know that this has been a very difficult process. Uh, challenging. This has all been very challenging. And you have just really tackled everything head on with... I'm not even going to say with grace because you weren't like, this is fine. Like it was hard. It's been hard, but by God, you're doing it. And that's, what's truly amazing. You're not, this is going to this might actually sound me. You're not making it look effortless, but you're doing it. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Kelly, yeah. Kelly, reaffirm me. Yeah, reaffirm no. me. <laughs> like, there's still a little bit of imposter syndrome, but yeah, like, I, st- I do. I feel like I know what I'm doing, and I feel like it's going to be okay. I'm nervous, but I'm not, like, yeah. scared. Yeah, like, it's, it's hard, but you're excelling despite that. I love it. 
I'm so happy for you. Well, thank you so much because we're happy for you too for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHPAD. Twitter. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, do you think I sound pod. like a man? I, I, I'm just trying to differentiate our voices. <laughs> Sorry, our sorry. website is whining about her story. And- it was it was either deeper or it was going to be Valley Girl. Oh, okay, God, please don't Valley Girl me. Twitter at w a h underscore pod. Our like, website I- is whiningabouthersterie.com where you can find our merch as well as a link to our Patreon, which you're. No, you're not already listening on. That was our last episode. Yeah. Which you can donate for as little as $1 to get some sweet bonus content or donate more if you want to get other sweet stuff. Yeah. Also, raise five stars wherever you listen. Gives us warm, fuzzy feelings. So many many warm, fuzzy feelings. (laughs) If you want to hear more of my man voice or more of my valley girl voice, or if you want to hear both those voices like going at it. We can make that happen. Yeah. Oh my God. So Ugh. in a probes. So in a probes. I love it. Anyway, God damn it. <laughs> Why do I always have to ruin the ends of these episodes? I, I pray to God no one actually listens. Yeah, they're I, like, I pray no, to no, God no, next they're episode. Like, oh, they're done. Click. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, no, no, no. I, I, I know about their Instagram. It's fine. Fuck it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm regrettably Emily. (laughs) I'm not regrettably Kelly. Have an empowered day. Bye.